Welcome back. This week's episode of Bits of a Tangent is a continuation of our three-part series on predictive processing theories of the brain. If you haven't already listened to part one, that was episode 28, check that out first. In this episode, Jean-Luc and I discuss the importance of sensory precision, the circular causality of prediction and action, and how action comes about in a counterintuitive way from high-confidence predictions, the way in which prior expectations can bias sensory sampling, and how this could lead to self-fulfilling spirals that would make your life either much worse or much better. As always, we hope you enjoy this episode of Bit of a Tangent. Let's first complete our rough sketch of the picture here. And to do that, we need to bring in a notion of precision, right? And it's actually precision and then this finicky term attention, which is key to this notion of selecting amongst competing hypotheses. And I'm not sure when to do it, but I think we're going to, I think we should do it in this, this part here. I think we're going to bring in action because predictive processing makes a rather radical claim about what action is, how it's entrained, and what its role is in the control of perception. Okay, so let's start off with precision. So up till now, right, we've got the notion of the brain as trying to minimize prediction error. You're trying to make sure that your model of the world is explaining the sensory data that is the world, right? Now, we could make a further refinement to that by saying what we're actually trying to do is minimize precision-weighted prediction error, okay? And it's actually this precision weighting that makes this model even more sort of explanatory and powerful. All right, cool. Walk us through it. So precision here refers to an estimate of the noise, right, the variance in the incoming sensory data. Okay. So basically you can think of precision as the reciprocal or the, the inverse of variance, right? So okay. a really precise measurement would be one where if you imagine like a nice bell-shaped distribution, right? Like your probability density function over some states, a really precise one would be if all of that probability was bunched up in one tall peak, right? Okay. Because then you're very sure that whatever it is you're measuring, it's, it's right yeah. there somewhere in that range, right? Your confidence interval is really small, yeah. And then an impre- imprecise measurement, right, would be this very flat curve where your probability is sort of distributed over a wide set of possibilities. And so picking amongst any of them doesn't give you much confidence that it's correct, right? Even if you pick the the maximum point, because it's not bunched up into this nice little discrete peak. Okay. And so you can see this just relates to the idea of sensory noise. And and as you've already mentioned, we're always dealing as as agents with brains with an environment that is inherently noisy, right? Our sense data Mm. is corrupted by environmental noise. There are competing stimuli, Right, there's just the movement of our own senses. I mean, if you just think about what our brain has to do, I mean, th- think about your eye for a second. First of all, there's a giant nerve sitting right in the bloody middle of the thing. Right, I mean, that's going to make seeing anything clearly quite difficult. Right, and the optic blind spot is is neatly patched over by 
these sort of predicting uh, predictive processing mechanisms. But not to mention there are blood vessels and two layers of fluid that Absolutely. that are stuck between the lens and then the cells that perceive these mm. light rays. And so, and on top of that, let me say, you're moving all the time, right? Your eyes is constantly being flung about by the little ocular muscles. And yet, for the most part, what all of us are perceiving is a smooth, clear, and unobstructed view of the world. And mm. yet, if we were just perceiving what's actually going on, we would have a nice big hole where the nerve is, blood vessels on top of certain parts of the input, and a jerky, noisy kind of ever-moving image that was not stable at all. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's the one. I mean, our brain is just filling in the gaps there, and 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 like it, it, apparently, your you you just go blind between your saccades, and your brain is just filling in its best like interpolation anyway. So it, it means that like most of the time, when you well, at least some significant fraction of the time, when you think you're looking and seeing stuff, you're actually not. You just you just have your brain's just sort of filling in, interpolating the the difference between one frame that you do see and the next, if you could think about it from that analogy. But yeah. Exactly. So in this model, what matters is highly precise prediction errors. And what it says is that we'll care more about a prediction error from a sensory input that we also predict is very precise. So, I mean, the analogy here would be, you know, if you are driving down a foggy road at night and in those swirls of fog, you see something the best model is just you know a big looming object. So obviously your current sensory schema is misty road at night, right? That's that's the top-down best prediction at the moment. That then is now competing with the hypothesis as misty road at night with something there in the fog. Mm. But the precision on the sensory data in the, in the fog is very low. So you are more reluctant to update that hypothesis, right? But imagine if a clearing appeared in the fog. In this model we would selectively sample sensory data from the clearing as opposed to the rest of the fog around it because the clearing is a source of high precision prediction errors. As in mm. anything that we saw in the clearing that was not already part of our model, right? And our model here is Misty Road at night. Anything that then appeared, right? So another car. So now, now the, the, the hypothesis of clear road is ruled out, right? But it's ruled out much faster, you could say, than the hypothesis of, of clear road when you're sampling from the part where there's also no mist. And, and that's because your prediction about the precision of sensory data in that region is, is higher. And so this then leads into what attention is under this model, right? So attention basically becomes a way of modulating the balance between top-down and bottom-up processing. So in a region where we have we expect high precision from our incoming data, right? That also means that our uncertainty about the data is low. Mm. Yeah. And so that means that anything that we didn't predict, any prediction error, is high precision prediction error. And that means we want to really care about it. And what it might look like in in this network is you could increase the gain, right? The volume on error units that are reporting high precision predictive, predictive error, right? And, and consequently, on in sensory regions with low precision, right, there's high uncertainty. And so prediction error from there, you should turn the gain down, right? Because it's, it's more likely to be noise. 
Yeah. So this is this is like in, in in audio engineering, the equivalent here is you want to boost the frequencies of the human voice and lower the frequencies of like background noise, like humming and wind and things like that, so that you can hear the signal, the human voice, clearer. Exactly. Right. Cool. And attention then is increasing the gain on these high precision prediction error units because as we've already said right the only thing that gets passed up is prediction error and so prediction error in some sense drives response right Mm. because if it's being passed up that means it has the chance to recruit a new hypothesis or to adapt the current hypothesis and so by increasing the gain you increase the ability for that area of the sensory input to drive the response of the organism and so what you're saying is that attention is this increased gain on high precision prediction error areas of the sensory input. Interesting, okay. Which is another way of saying that you care more about the bottom-up part when, you're pay- when there's a tension on it than the top-down. Whereas in a low-precision setting, you would care more about your top-down model. Oh, that's fucking cool. Okay, so like you're stumbling around in the dark, well, then it makes sense to just use... Well, that's a bad example because then you start using other sensory modalities. Well, put but it this let's way, say you're driving down the foggy road, right? But it's a road that yeah. I've driven many times before. Whilst right. all that fog is there, the best way is for me to just use my my memory and my my mm. model of the road, right? I know that the road is generally unobstructed at this time of night, so there's fog, so I'm driving slower, but I'm relying on my top-down part more. And the parts I'm going yeah. to pay the most attention to are when sensory data that will actually be useful to me, right? That will actually provide high precision prediction errors if I'm wrong. There's, there's no point in me grasping at shadows and seeing another car in the mist. Yeah. But if you see another car in the clearing of the fog or the mist, mm. that's worth paying attention to and altering my behavior. That's super cool. Okay, that's really... Okay, so let me, let me go through some of those things and just make sure that I've understood everything correctly. Um, so... We had this idea of prediction error, which is the difference between what you expect something to be and what you sense it to be. But the problem is that our any sensor um, and all of our human senses are are inherently flawed, right? There, 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 there is always going to be some noise. There's always going to be some inaccuracy there. And so what we want to do is we want to care more. And, and the environment varies how much that is, right? Uh, what we want to do is we want to care more about precise measurements, ones, ones in which there is a lot of signal and very little relative noise, then we care about imprecise ones. We, and, and that's what we mean by this idea of precision-weighted prediction error, right? You could think of mathematically by like multiplying our prediction errors by the confidence we have that they are precise signals. But in, in, in the sort of real tangible sense, we mean just like we care more about things when there's more signal-to-noise in in that observation right and the way we know where we should be looking like where we should be sampling from because that's the obvious question it's like how do we know where to sample from how do we know what's got a little variance is by is through attention right and so you might be in like a room full of people everyone's talking there's a lot of sensory input there but yet somehow we're able to focus on what one person is saying and actually make out what they're saying and understand it um, and that is through the use of attention, right? We're focusing in on some part of our senses and some observations and not others. Or am I confusing related ideas of attention here? I think they're probably related in that when, when someone says, oh, I'm, I'm paying attention, right? Let's say you're, you're looking for something in front of you, right? You are 
paying attention more. So we say I'm, I'm paying attention for that object, but what is also going on at the sort of neuronal level is let's say the object is a pen, right? I'm looking for a pen, pen amongst all the objects on my desk. What I've essentially done is I've increased the gain, right? The volume on error units that will, that will correspond to high precision areas in my sensory input field, right? And what I'm doing is I'm driving, I'm, I'm choosing to allow my current base model of the world to be driven more by the bottom up experience. Okay. But that obviously has to be informed in some sense by your model of the world. It's informed, right? But, but so actually this is probably illustrative, even if I'm doing a bad job of, of articulating it. But so I don't know where my pen is, right? So my model of the mm. world says there's a pen on my desk, I'm pretty sure, but it doesn't know where. And so by choosing to pay attention, that's another way of saying, actually use your bottom up sense more. So mm. literally, instead of just predicting top down, oh, there's a pen there, actually care much more about the exact physical location that's reported by my the sense data of the pen, and then adjust your hypothesis, your, your high level hypothesis of where it is based on that, rather than adjusting your sense data based on the hypothesis. So like attention therefore allows us to actually engage more usefully with the world because it's it's the it's the lever that shifts our balance between caring about what we already conceive the world to be, this top-down sense, and how the world actually is, right, in this bottom-up sense. Because this is the problem that predictive processing falls into without it, is you're always asking, well, how do you then balance how much you take into account your prior experiences versus new data. Mm. And attention yeah. is sort of this this mechanism you can introduce, which starts to partially answer that question, I think. Okay, yeah. And and I think we've probably all experienced that um, like phenomenologically, right? So you could you could be in some new situation where there's lots of things and that are novel to you and you're not sure what's going on. And you can f- you can notice the subjective experience of paying attention as we use it in the colloquial sense. But what that corresponds to, we are thinking under this predictive processing model is that your, your brain is turning up the gain. It's, it's twisting the knobs on some of the neurons to emphasize certain kinds of signals over others in areas where we think there's good information to be found areas where we think we're sensing an accurate, precise input that we can use to update our model. Um, and then the inverse of that being when you're super confident, you know, like when you're in your own home and you know it super well, you know where everything is, you, you're probably, you're actually not paying all that much attention um, until like something explodes or the ceiling collapses or whatever, right? Yeah. Okay. So now the last piece of this puzzle is to incorporate action, right? We already mentioned that, on some level, the cash value of everything that we do in the brain is to entrain a, a, an action loop, right? Something that affects the world. And so now we get to, I think, one of the most delightful ideas of predictive processing, which is how it treats action. So the first thing to notice, right, is in the traditional models of the brain, there's this like separation, right? We've got incoming sensory inputs, right? And we do this whole bottom up processing, great. And then we've got these outgoing, well, I guess rather, and then you've got outputs, which are the actions you choose to make based on the inputs. But in predictive processing, the outputs and the inputs are much tight, much more tightly bound. Okay. And that's because if you just notice something here, 
doing something to the world will change how you perceive it. And simplest being just visual. Okay? The action of, of moving the muscle of your eye will also move what the eye sees. Right? And so what the eye sees then could also drive that movement. So the thing I'm trying to get at is that there's a way that you can view action itself as also based on prediction, as opposed to the traditional model, which which has these things as uh, has like sensory processing and action generation as very separate processes. And this is how you do it, right? So if you think about it, right, you have sensors in all of your joints and all of your muscles that tell your body about the position of your joints, right? Your proprioceptive sense. It tells you about the length of any given muscle. It tells you about the amount of tension the muscle is under. So one way to think about movement is that the easiest way to make my arm move to another point, right? If you view the brain's job as trying to minimize prediction error, is for me to have a highly confident prediction that my arm is at that point and then rely on my muscles to minimize the difference between my predicted position of my joint and the, and the position reported by my senses. Oh, shit, that's cool. Right? I mean, so you can see this is totally backwards, right? Because in, in the yeah. sensory sense, or in, in the sensory paradigm, we've got this model, and we've already seen some cases where maybe our model overrules the incoming sensory data, right? We're you know, seeing the hollow mask as, as forward-facing. But here, we're saying, okay, well, for some reason, it would be better right now if my arm were fully extended. How do I achieve that? Well, have a really strong prediction that my model is at, that my arm is actually fully extended and then rely on other levels of my neural architecture to minimize the prediction error between that model and what is actually observed. And the simplest way to minimize the prediction error of I predict my arm is there is to just actually move your arm there. That is such a weird inversion. Oh wow! I have to just process that for a second. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an interesting. So what one. what what happens? What happens if for some reason like you can't move your arm? Like it's been you've been tranquilized and you 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 have no control over those muscles. Then does does the inability to move the muscles to reduce that prediction error finally result in something going? Hey, this is not working, and then it changes the model to match the observations instead. Probably something like that. It also probably explains something like you know that that feeling of frustration, right? When you can't move an arm, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, take uh, a drug that then blocks that muscular action. You would say, well, maybe because now you're not receiving. You you think naively, okay, well, since I'm not receiving any signal at all from it, it should be the absence of stimulus that I perceive. But the fact that you yeah. perceive this kind of frustration at having your arm feel like it's not doing what it's supposed to. I think that could be almost a symptom of having a model where the model predicts the arm to be somewhere else. And then the sense mm. data never conforms with that prediction. And so that, that's the feeling of a frustrated purpose. Yeah, that's super interesting. A, a part of me thinks that this actually yields something really interesting because of the reason that, I mean, you, you, there's this model, this this general purpose model that you can have, and I mentioned it before, of, of an agent, right? Whether it's an animal, whether it's a robot, whatever. But it's got sensors, it's got some processing, some memory or something like that, um, and it's got actuators. So in our case, it's muscles, right. in a robot's case, it's motors and things of that nature. But just as all sensors are imperfect, 
like there's always going to be environmental noise. There's always going to be some implementational restrictions and limitations, right? Like no sensor is perfect, but in the same way, no actuator is perfect either, right? Like the, the frictional coefficient with a robot's rubber wheel is not always going to be consistent depending on the surface. And they, it's not consistent between all the different wheels or like the servo motors don't all give exactly the optimal amount of torque all consistently on a robot arm or our muscles are not all, you know, perfectly calibrated or consistent or uniform. So, so there's all of these little ways in which our actuators are imperfect too. And it seems to me that this tight coupling, this tight feedback loop between perception and action in the predictive processing paradigm is actually a way of dealing with the noisiness of sensors and actuators in a really useful way, right? By trying to make these two things converge and, and, and having this constant feedback uh, as you try and minimize your your error, you are accommodating the fact that both your inputs and your outputs are imperfect and you're constantly able to update on that, right? Because the alternative is is how, you know, people who are like lost in a very dense jungle or on a very dark night will end up walking in circles. It's like the the small little error in the actuator performance can just lead to you know, not achieving your goals. Mm. And it's the same thing as we've already discussed with your sensory input, with your perception. And so by tightly coupling those two, it seems that you may be able to handle the noisiness or the imprecision or the failings of them a lot better because you're just constantly like updating this feedback loop. Yeah. And and the, the coupling between them gets more interesting. So we already alluded to the fact that obviously the actions you take affect the sensory signals that you receive right and a big part of what we've been speaking about before that was the fact that the sensory signals that you perceive will alter the top-down hypotheses that you entertain but also that the top-down hypotheses both contain expectations for what sensory signals you are going to to encounter and also now when we add action to the mix they also encode expectations for the best way to sample the sensory signal to confirm that hypothesis so you know, take the example again of looking out in a dark scene somewhere where there's the addition of noise to your visual machinery, right? You now see something emerge out of the darkness. And there are a few hypotheses for this. It could be that this is a dangerous thing. It's a threat, like right? There's a, a burglar in the darkness there. Or it could be the houseplant that you keep in the corner at all times, mm. right? Now, which of those two hypotheses win? Well, obviously, at the at the start of this, you haven't selected between the two, right? The overarching hypothesis that's winning is just something in the corner. But now there's clearly some unpredicted sensory input by that. And so we need a better hypothesis, right? The unpredictive, unpredicted sensory input is the fact that you haven't told me what that something is. So now the, be- the hypothesis that best explains that sensory, sensory input will be the hypothesis that actually tells me what it is. Now, Let's say the two competing hypotheses, right, uh, houseplant and burglar, well, contained in each is also a motor plan that would tell you how to best sample the environment to confirm that hypothesis. And now here's where we get into what um, the authors of, of, well, the author of the book that I read on this topic call these circular causal flows. And I'm going to try and just give a good example, and we'll come back to it a few times because it is both fascinating and then a little bit tricky at least i found it like that awesome so your hypothesis encodes 
a motor routine for how best to confirm that hypothesis. And we've said that only successful hypotheses make good enough predictions that they predict away incoming sensory signal. Right? A bad hypothesis will leave so much unpredicted signal that all that error will accumulate and force you to switch hypotheses. So now if you just trace through that, you can see something interesting happen where let's say the hypothesis, there is a burglar there, right? And that tells me that I should visually saccade to look for a black jacket and maybe the glint of a gun or some other weapon at about the level that you're predicting is waist height, given the height and your prior belief of the height of humans, right? Yeah. So that's a very, that's a specific prediction. And let's say that entrains my visual saccade to first go towards the chest to look for the black jacket or maybe the shape of an arm or something and it then goes down towards the waist where you're expecting a gun or so the glint of metal right those are two expectations Mm. two predictions that this model is making and that predicts then that my eyes should make that movement my eyes minimize prediction error by moving the muscles in such a way to do that and if my hypothesis is correct right if there really is a burglar there then the prediction of glinting metal at the waist level and black sleeves at the sort of shoulder level will mean that very little sensory error is passed up. And so the hypothesis remains in control, which means mm. it also remains in control of action because now there are further things which it predicts, right? Like maybe the next thing you should saccade to is to look, you know, is that glinting metal gun or torch? And maybe there's, so you're going to then fixate on that. Or maybe it says that the next thing to do is run, right? But that hypothesis remains in control so long as its predictions are good enough that not enough error gets passed up that another hypothesis takes control. Because if that hypothesis was wrong, right? So it's in control. It predicts, look at the shoulder level or what you think is a shoulder, and then look at the waist level for the glinting metal object, right? If it was wrong, you look at the shoulder level and you're like, "Mm, it looks more like a leaf than a shoulder. And you look down at the waist level and there's no glinting metal object. That's two instances of sensory prediction error. In this toy example, right, those now get passed up and it proves so wrong that now the best model that fits that data is actually a completely different one. And the one that minimizes prediction error is the model, oh, my houseplant is in the corner. Okay. So now that model is in control and it has control of the action system as well. And it predicts that the best way to then continue to minimize sensory error is to look at the base, right? The the level of like what would be the shins if it was a burglar, but would actually be the level of the pot that it's sitting in. And that right. minimizes the error because now you're looking there. And if it's in, if it's correct, then looking there, because you predict pot, you should see some lines that correspond to the general outline of the pot. And again, you remain in control if you successfully predict. So basically each hypothesis contains in it the steps that your motor system should take to confirm it. And insofar as your hypothesis is confirmed, that hypothesis will remain in control. That's super cool. And you can just imagine then as as uh, some are ruled out and then other p- hypotheses become more likely um, and then they get confirmed, you can just imagine sort of from your distribution, your probability mass just gets concentrated over time around the most, the one that best matches with reality. Um, and that's a really cool concept. What I find particularly interesting about this is that it seems that the way what predictive processing is suggesting here is that the way that our brains work is by trying to confirm our suspicions as opposed to trying to falsify them, which kind of means that it it, it is um, kind of orthogonal to the way we typically think about doing good science or being rational, right? Like there's, there's this idea in classic rationality of the experimental method 
that you would come up with some hypothesis and then your experiment should be attempting to falsify it. Whereas it seems at least at the surface level that predictive processing is suggesting we actually look for ways to confirm our hypotheses and it's when we fail that we then go to another one, right? And maybe you could spin it in a way of saying like when you're looking for the glint of the gun, you're not looking for the glint of the gun, you're looking for the absence of the glint of the gun, which would then be falsifying it. So you could maybe spin it that way and that would reconcile those two. But in some way, I think it's more useful if it's explaining why we look for confirmation and not for falsification, because A, that seems more efficient, right? Because trying to find a way to disconfirm something is much harder than finding a way to try and increase your likelihood that it's true. And also it it would explain why humans have that natural tendency to confirmation bias over disconfirmation bias, right? So it would have more explanatory power that way. So this is a very interesting area. Like I'm not sure which it says. I don't know if you have some thoughts on this, but like that's really fascinating to me. I don't know if it's the, the full root of our confirmation bias, but I think something like it, I think, let me rather say that the general idea of predictive processing also explains other features of the world or of our experience as humans that otherwise seem a little bit mysterious. And and I'm kind of fond of those. And a few worth talking about would be uh, the, the placebo effect, where our expectations of cure seem to, to drive cure. I think that's an interesting one. Oh, interesting. That's super cool. Because the, the, that coupling between sensor and actuator or, or perception and action there is... is in, like, that's in, okay cool let's get to that yeah. but yeah carry on and then the other interesting one is again this coupling that you spoke about if you think about that sort of very glib advice which is on numerous instagram pages i'm sure and just mm. generally is irritating to hear but the, the the notion of your attitude will determine the opportunities that manifest for you right mm. so the person with a positive outlook will see more opportunities right and this comes into yeah. some real bullshit like um that mm. book the secret right where, where yeah what's it it's the law of attraction where you're i mean it, it's complete bullshit except the worst part about it is that it's not utter bullshit if you completely ignore everything they say in the book and just take the general idea that things you look for more often will also tend to appear more in the world and this mm. is directly predicted out of predictive processing that's super cool. Because if you think about it, let's say a person who has experienced a lot of uh, unfortunate you know, muggings, robberies in their life, that person, their, their world model codes more often for the prior belief of that thing in the corner is a burglar. Mm. Or maybe it, it codes more generally, right? Even at a high level, it codes more generally for like people are generally untrustworthy yeah. and out to do harm. Mm. And so now what, what does that mean, right? That encodes for a model that recruits an action sequence that will look for instances of humans doing harm. I mean, this is very hand-wavy, right? This is so high mm. level that it, it might not even be useful to talk about this anymore. But yeah, I, I think it is in a way. But let me just say that in case this, this really causes objections. But to continue there, right? Whatever, whatever model they're currently deploying encodes an action sequence which finds ways to confirm its hypothesis, which is humans are generally mm. untrustworthy and seek to cause harm. And what that might look like is the person walking through, you know, a neighborhood or an area and seeing all the ways in which people are actually harming each other. Maybe it makes mm. you much more likely to see the person littering out the side of their car. And then you also see the person dealing drugs 
on the street corner and you see the negative expressions on on people's faces you know the glint of malice in someone's eyes and this all confirms the big high level hypothesis that people are generally mean contrasted with another person whose top down model is people are generally good and they walk through the exact same place and they see the person helping an old lady across the street and they see the smile that someone gives to a family mm. member and this is all driven by a motor plan which is under control of the current leading hypothesis and the motor plan finds evidence that keeps it in control mm. and so you get two people who see the exact same scene and report completely different things and i think this is so explanatory for so many of the 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 fights that people get into the arguments where people literally are looking at the same thing and completely disagree about the implications yeah that's super fascinating I mean that would that would give really good explanatory power when talking about like why social trust seems to go sigmoidal in one direction or the other right like uh what i mean by that like in in places where you have very high social trust it's self-reinforcing and so it just becomes ubiquitous and 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 it's almost exponential in how it increases so think of like your scandinavian type countries right um and then in places where you have really low social trust it it just goes the other way very extremely so you think about in like many parts in south africa the social trust is incredibly low and having you know lived in south africa and also in the netherlands it's it's really interesting to see like how little difference you actually need for that the subjective predictions of social trust to just go exponential in each direction right like you can have very few experiences but then those just immediately shape your estimation of of the base rate and 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 because it's a reinforcing cycle with everyone else around you it just goes exponential in one direction or the other and and that would really fit with you know we see things and then we look for more of those things in the future it would also explain like a lot of the weird phenomena like the um what's this one called bader meinhof phenomenon and if you haven't heard of it now you'll hear about it everywhere <laughs> it's essentially that experience of you've never heard of something before you hear about it you learn a bit about it and then suddenly you notice it being said everywhere exactly um it just comes up all the time and and we're all very familiar with this experience and it, it seems to have something to do with that as well yeah but yeah, I just I just find the idea that co- these kind of quotes that always made me quite irritated, like um, the one of the ones famously was uh, Paolo Coelho in The Alchemist wrote the line, and when you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it. Yeah. And that always irritated me because like, no, it doesn't. Obviously, it doesn't. It doesn't give a shit about what you want. But if you just reframe that instead of being the universe as being your internal system of predictive models conspire in helping you to achieve it well that kind of makes sense given predictive predictive coding your universe your universe helps you in, in to achieve it right literally that's that's this core idea of, of predictive coding it's like internally you are viewing the world some way and then you're well you're not viewing the world right you're viewing your model of the world yeah sorry yeah let's let's go yeah you you're, you have this model of the world that it, it's your world your world view to use the the colloquial term right and then your actions and your way of looking at your sensory input end up just reinforcing and shaping that a lot of the time um, and in this feedback loop. And, and so if you want something desperately, if you make that part of your world model, it's almost like this hack to doing that. And now what we've effectively done is given so much ammunition to people who are advocates of this kind of stuff. We, we, we we're essentially offering up the equivalent of quantum mechanics to Deepak Chopra right now which is dangerous it's funny because i had the exact same thought before yeah and this is something we joke about is the fact that we have pretty good world models of each other so 
Mm. Anyway, that's that's so. So some so the next time you hear someone trying to sell you a crystal because it increases your precision of predictive processing, then you then you then you need to run. <laughs> you need to write us an angry tweet and be like, "Look what you've done." Yeah, what you say is important as well because remember what we've already said about precision weighting of prediction error, right? Mm. And basically, we said that areas where there's high precision predictive error, you can actually rely on the bottom-up signals more. That's what attention yep. is. But low-precision areas, we have to lie on our top-down models much more. And just to add another interesting effect of this into our experience of the world, think about how much ambiguity there is in human relations. Like, is the glance that you give me a flirty one? Or is it viewing me with suspicion? Are you holding eye contact because you're challenging my status or are you doing it because you want to signal a sort of interest in what I have to say, right? And mm-hmm. we are constantly interpreting these very noisy, ambiguous cues. And, and, and here the ambiguity is not so much like the ambiguity of seeing a, a misty road, right? But it is a kind of ambiguity. And so if you then take seriously that the winning hypothesis will recruit motion or, or action that helps to confirm it and then will only be displaced if its predicted action sequence throws up incorrect information, you can see as well how anxious people or people with social anxiety or people who think that people are constantly talking about them, because that data is noisy, right? It's low precision. You will be relying on your top-down model. And if your current top-down model says people generally dislike me and people generally talk about me behind my back, let's say, so you're relying on the model more than the data. So now you see someone look at you, your best hypothesis now is going to be, oh, this person doesn't like me. That was a frown. And in fact, there's some experiments here, right? Where, you know, you, you can get people with, you know, with, with anxiety or social anxiety and without it to look at a glance or a facial expression. And even though it's the same facial expression, they will interpret different things, right? And that, that is mm. obvious in some sense. But if you think about how damaging that is, right, that could mean that you are constantly interpreting the world in a way that is harmful to you. And this is, again, where the kind of bullshit peddling from the secret, where they say, you know, just view everything as unilaterally good. Well, when people report an improvement in their life because of that, you can imagine why. Because you're taking this noisy data, which is already ambiguous, and you're saying, no, 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 Mm -hmm. people are just, they generally like me. And so then you will tend to interpret the the noisy sensory data with this top-down prior of oh, well, this is probably good like that person was looking at me because they hold me in high regard they want to see what i'm doing whatever yeah. and of course this now increases both your confidence in yourself and in the hypothesis and you get this virtuous self-fueling cycle where you continue to find evidence of your manifest greatness in the world and and, and so again it's you know it's bullshit when they write it in the secret but mm. When you think about it, like there's a genuine case to be made for that kind of way of being in the world. If, for example, you were interested in reducing your social anxiety or increasing the the extent to which you find conversations to be enjoyable and to find people that like you. Man, so so essentially what we're saying is, is this idea that comes from the secret and from the alchemist is this idea of you are going to choose to think about certain things or view the world in certain ways and that's going to like reinforce that and make the world comply with that there's there's this tight correlation with that and actual concepts in in predictive processing and it it almost seems to me like that's just like it's like a hack right it's like a hack to just feeling better about yourself definitely but the issue there seems to be 
that because there is so much noise in this sensory input, that this is just primed to, like I said about social trust, it's it's primed to just go exponential in one direction or the other, mm. right? Like it seems like it either is going to push you to just having zero self-worth and just seeing everything that happens as people disliking you and thinking very little of you, or it's going to make you this egomaniacal, you know, Machiavellian, I don't know, whatever. You're just a person who's totally maybe narcissistic or you just, you have overly inflated self-worth and idea of your own ability. Um, and neither of those are healthy or useful, right? Because essentially what you've done is you've, you've curated a belief to use it instrumentally, right? But you've deliberately then injected some falseness into your prediction models, which, which means that you're not, now you're predicting inaccurately. And when, and as we discussed right at the beginning, when you're predicting things inaccurately, your ability to decide which actions to take to get the best outcomes in the future is then skewed, right? So if your life is going horribly, but you think you're amazing, well, then you're never going to be able to make the changes necessary to improve your life, right? And if your life is going okay, but you think you're terrible, well, you're never going to be able to like see where the value is and you're going to be miserable even though you don't need to be and you're not going to be able to fix that. So it's, it seems like this is a really dangerous thing as well. And then it occurred to me that perhaps that same system, that same conscious overlay that lets us look at the inverted mask or any other kind of illusion, and once we know that it's an illusion, once we know that this is something that's primed to confuse us, we can consciously guard against it by deliberately going, hey, I have a high reason to suspect this is an illusion. Don't trust your perception here. Which is kind of a bit of cognitive behavioral therapy. You can almost wrap this layer over all of this view of the world and how people think about us by actively seeking out information that will be contrary to your worldview right, right? or so your inner model right in this case and and what that would do is it would help you selectively get input that would correct for any extremities that are making your internal model inaccurate Right. So it would help as like a calibrating force, because ultimately you want to be well aligned with reality, as we said in the beginning, because that allows you to make the best predictions and that allows you to take the best actions that lead to the best outcomes in the future. And so it seems almost like you want this rational overlay that allows you to make the kinds of conscious choices that lead you towards other forms of evidence that might realign and readjust the model that's gone haywire. Like, like, maybe let me give a concrete example of this to show what I mean more clearly. If you're the kind of person who feels that everyone dislikes you, we know now under this predictive processing framework, you're going to be naturally seeking out the information that confirms this. You're, you're going to see how people snub you and how Joe made coffee for everyone else in the office, but not for you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's going to reinforce that. If you have this overlay of, hey, look for examples that like disconfirm this, and then you go and actively look for cases where people were nice to you or specifically to you or cases where people were mean to other people, not just to you, then that might help recalibrate that and go, oh, hey, the reason he didn't make coffee for me is that actually he was making coffee for everyone else so that he could whisper to them, hey, we're planning his surprise party upstairs, the cake and everything. So, you know, it's not because he didn't like it, it's because they were trying to surprise you, whatever. So, so you're actively sort of compensating and adjusting. And that's exactly where the cognitive behavioral therapy would come in. Um, is to you are deliberately interfering with this feedback loop in order to try and keep it well calibrated with reality. I think what you're pointing at is is learning to not take too seriously some of the the feelings which we we have so much certainty in you right. know, the, the hypotheses which are genuinely or generally 
unhelpful. And as you say, I guess the double-edged sword here is you don't want to end up in some place where you, in trying to construct this improved state of the world for yourself, where you become so detached and so deluded that you know you're telling yourself, no, no, they're planning my surprise party. But no, in reality, they really don't like you and you are a shitty co-worker. Yeah. And, exactly. and thinking about that and thinking about how we are constantly trying to construct things in a way that is useful i think is is going to be a key theme as we go forward here because mm. one way of reformulating predictive processing is in the sense in which it is useful and it's this usefulness coefficient which which gets translated into the unhelpfully vague terminology of free energy that is mm. interesting as we go forward thanks for listening to bit of a tangent you can find us on Twitter at PodTangent and tune in next week for part three of this series on predictive processing. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please consider sharing it. Thanks for listening.